0: What a joy it is to be here with you all again this morning. So, it's always a pleasure to be with you to celebrate uh, the glorious gospel that we have to bring us together here this morning and to unite us as we hear the word uh, read and preached over us, even this morning. I'd like to invite you to go ahead and turn with me in your copy of God's word to John 2 at this time, specifically verses uh, 13 through 25, as we'll be reading uh, from the account of Jesus as he cleansed the temple. I think it's ironic. course not so ironic really that we just sung a song about God's holiness for here in this picture of Christ cleansing the temple we are about to behold of course the holy God himself the holy one of Israel coming in to the place that was meant to be holy and yet had become profaned and how he dealt with it in his holiness cleansing it and bringing it into a place of cleanness if you will again so uh Without further ado, let's go ahead and read from God's word together here this morning from John chapter 2 verse 13. This is God's holy word given to us in love. The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Friends, this is the word of God again given to us in love forever faithful and true. With this still fresh in our minds, let's go ahead and come before our heavenly father in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this time to come before you, recognizing your holiness And we ask, O God, that you would give us a fresh sense of awe and childlike wonder before you, and before your scriptures as they have been read over us. May we receive them. May we be a people who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, that we would see righteousness by name in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ this morning. We pray, O God, that we would find him to be our righteousness, that we would find him to be the Holy One who makes us holy who is indeed zealous for even our own holiness and our purification. And so, Lord, we ask humbly that you would come in your power, the power of the Holy Spirit, and use the preached word now in this time to declare the mystery of the gospel afresh to us again in this place. So we ask, O Lord, that you would do a great and marvelous work in in our eyes today as you work mysteriously through your word applying it to our hearts by faith. We ask all this in the precious and holy name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. Friends, the other day, a, a very dear friend of mine had asked me to watch his uh, two-year-old golden retriever, a little puppy at heart still, while well, he and his family took a much-needed vacation. He's a hard work and, worker, and he was very much in need of a time off from his work. And now my, old, uh, my own uh, two-year-old chocolate lab named Baxter that I think I've told a little uh, bit about before to some of you here is actually best friends with this puppy of my friend. And so as you can imagine, as I brought my puppy over to uh, hang out with his puppy while his family was gone for a while, the two dogs were just having the time of their lives. <laughs> they were hanging out in the backyard for three days straight, running around, running in circles, chasing balls, and literally tackling each other one after the next having, again, the time of their lives. But the whole day, right before, my, uh, right before my friend returned from his vacation, it just so happened to be raining, not unlike today, and it was raining all day long. And so after a good while of waiting, with the dogs cooped up inside for far too long, I finally decided to let them out, just for only three minutes, right? You know, what, what harm could they do just being outside for only three minutes, finally getting their energy out? Well, of course, uh, by the time they came back inside, they had tracked in all kinds of mud. And literally within minutes, <laughs> they came back in just soaked head to tail and immediately they were running off, running circles, not just outside now, but in the living room, jumping on top of my friend's clean, white, pure couches. And I wish I was making this up, but I'm not at all. <laughs> it was a disaster. And the mud had made its way into the house. Soon, by tomorrow, the very next day, it would have been caked all over things if I didn't quickly clean it up. And so, as you can imagine, I became became a little stressed. Okay, I've got to wash these dogs, bathe them quickly, and now get to the real work of the day, cleaning those couches especially, those pure white couches, to the best of my ability. Well, this morning, friends, we are about to see here in our passage, as we begin to unpack it, a far greater work of cleansing going on here in John 2, here we're going to see the very zeal of Jesus Christ for God's house utterly consume him to the point that he physically removed those figurative dogs from God's holy temple. But this story that we were about to read of and unpack even more here this morning is far greater than a mere cleaning spree (laughs) This passage truly is especially relevant to us, for it speaks to us of God's zeal for the worship of his people. And it proves to us that Jesus is himself zealous for even our own purification as his people. After all, we ourselves are not unlike those two muddy retrievers drawn into the mess of this world. You may even feel like yourself uh, this morning, that you feel a little muddy even here in this place of worship, muddy from the sin of others and the shame that has been put upon you and the guilt that you have maybe even carried in your own life as you have walked in to this place of worship this morning. But my friends, the gospel of Jesus tells us something so powerful as it speaks here into the muddiness of our own lives. It tells us that Jesus will not keep us in this muddy estate we find ourselves in. See, Jesus loves you Far too much to let you go on wallowing in the mud of this world. And so in his goodness, he washes us thoroughly and lovingly, brings us back into his presence, into his home. But why? Why would he do such a thing? It's so that he might enjoy purified, clean, and unbridled, grace-filled fellowship with us. And so church, if you catch nothing else this morning, please catch this, our our main idea this morning, that Jesus is indeed zealous for your purification. And we'll see this idea of Jesus being zealous for our purification in our text specifically, in how he cleansed the temple, and then also how he would cleanse in good time the church, and how he even does to this day cleanse us as individuals. Those will be our three points for this morning, and I'd like to invite you to to turn with me, if you will, again, to this first verse in verse 13 as we examine this first point, how Jesus in his zeal was so zealous in how he cleansed the temple. See, friends, we see this comforting truth first on display here. Again, our passage here in verse 13 tells us the following, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, and that's the key there, in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers doing what? Sitting there. It made God's home their own home for business. Now, we don't have time to unpack the fuller context of the whole Passover meal this morning as it talks about him arriving at the beginning of the Passover feast, that whole week-long celebration. However, it is most important for us to know here and now that this meal was indeed a gift from God's own hand, given in love to God's own people. This meal, the Passover, was actually an Old Testament sacrament, as many of us know here, that was established all the way back in Exodus chapter 12 with the people of Israel in order to represent Christ as the coming and future Passover lamb to end all previous Passover lambs. And so, not only did this Passover meal represent Christ well in advance of his coming, but it also represented Christ and all of his benefits to his people well in advance. And so, here in John 2, we see the Passover as the occasion and the temple as the location of this week long celebration. Believers were drawn to Jerusalem then from all across the known world to celebrate here in this dedicated, holy place of God's worship. A place where not even a hint of false worship or idolatry was even to be allowed or found. But what happened here in our text? See here in John 2 verse 13, we see Jesus go into this same temple, the house of his father, and behold this dastardly scene in front of him. But before we unpack the question of why, why would Jesus go there? Or rather, what did he see? We have to ask the question, why? Why did he go into the temple? I believe from our text even and from the rest of the scripture, we understand that he went for two main reasons. First, to perfectly obey the law of God in our place, but also second, to lead us in proper biblical worship. And so Jesus proved himself even here in our text to be both fully man but also fully God in his incarnation. But what happened when Jesus entered the temple? We see that he became furious, of course. What did he see that made him furious? Well, he saw the slippery slope of sloppy worship. See, he saw the love of money replacing the love of God. He saw evil men leeching off of those who had traveled far and wide to be there to worship God through sacrifice. But they were able to leech off of them because they had essentially disavowed themselves from the commandment of, the God to, of God to honor the Sabbath and to keep it holy. See, these men and women had come and opted to buy animals for sacrifice there in the moment rather than preparing their animals for sacrifice in advance as God had commanded them. And so the money changers took advantage of God's people and their breaking of God's commandments in so doing. They didn't just set up shop outside the temple and invite them to uh, do that money exchange there, but rather these money changers dared to take the place of God's holy worship inside of that holy temple. And to add insult to injury, even to the people, (laughs) These same money changers charged those people around four times the going rate of that day. Talk about inflation, right? (laughs) Their worship, though, the people of God, their worship had become adulterated. And all for the cause of convenience in their worship, they fell prey to a den of robbers. Who were these robbers then? See, these robbers were those who had stolen the attention of the people away from a true heart of brokenness and contriteness of heart and replaced it with the concern over just how many animals those people of Israel could buy in the moment so that they could pay their dues to God. These robbers had stolen the significance of grace and replaced it with a focus on trying to earn God's favor There, in that day, these robbers had stolen the joy of the people's salvation and exchanged that joy for dry, ritualistic religion. But above all, these robbers had sought, not succeeded, but sought to steal God's glory by replacing what had been set apart for holy use with noisy shops and stands and tables lined with coins from all around that known world, all within the walls of God's house. So Jesus rightly became furious. See, our God is not just a holy God. He is a jealous God. And he will not share his glory with another, nor will he ever let his glory be stolen. Or, please catch this, his people be extorted through the hands of evil men. And so Jesus threw down the gauntlet. He fashioned a whip of cords. He used every necessary force to drive the workers of evil out from the holy place of God. He poured out their coins. He overturned their tables. And he spoke clearly to all who heard, do not make my father's house a house of trade. Friends, we, if we are honest with ourselves, are not that unlike those worshipers there in John chapter 2, are we? Those whose worship becomes so cluttered and distracted. See, we may think, we may not really think in terms of robbery when we think of, of not obeying the Lord's Sabbath, for instance. But every time that we choose our own personal comforts or our own concerns our own conveniences over worshiping God wholeheartedly as he has commanded us to through his word we are in and of itself robbing ourselves of experiencing his full joy goodness and grace and so we need to have our worship be purified by this Jesus of whom we read of here in John 2 This brings us to our second point for this morning, that not only did Jesus, in his zeal, cleanse the temple, but he also essentially promised to cleanse and purify his church in verses 18 through 22. This is where we find the good news, not just his righteous anger, but his zeal and his love for his church. And he did this specifically, as it alludes to here in verses 18 through 22, through his death and through his resurrection. Look with me again, if you will, at what the Jews asked of him in verse 18. After he kicked out the money changers, what did they say to him? They said, what sign do you show us for doing these things? In other words, won't you show us a symbol of your authority, Jesus? I believe they were right in actually asking this question. It's a fair question to ask. Now, I may or may not be speaking from personal experience, but if you have ever been pulled over for a speeding ticket just by chance (laughs) what is the first thing that a cop is required to show you their badge right a symbol of their authority In the same way this is essentially what the Jews were asking when they saw him address their sin and their rebellion (laughs) their violations if you will see Joe Israelite essentially was saying something to the effect of Jesus what is the basis of your authority show us your badge right I mean, sure, we also want to worship God, but we couldn't have been the ones to drive out those money changers. We don't have that authority. So who gave you the right to do that? Were you just feeling fed up in the moment? Or feeling rebellious? Just wanted to lash out against them? Or were you acting out on behalf of the Lord God Almighty who is in heaven? Friends, how did Jesus answer them? I love the way he answers them here. He didn't just speak very clear, simple words to them. He prophesied. See, the beauty of what he did here is that he purposefully guised his spiritual and magisterial authority in the most profound way. He prophesied saying, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. They were not just confused by these words, they were actually provoked, I believe, here in this text, by these words. And they essentially retorted immediately, who do you think you are then? I mean, it took us 46 years to rebuild this temple from the ground up. Who are you to say these things? See, sadly, the Jews had missed the point of what Jesus was saying. He was speaking of the temple of his body. For he himself is the glory of God in the flesh, the dwelling place of God with man, the Lamb of God who is himself the true and the better temple. And he refused to allow this picture of himself in his holiness before the people be tainted with sin. Even this prefigured picture of himself in the temple. It's as the writer of Hebrews tells us then. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. A temple, right? In burnt offerings and in sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, and again, these are Jesus' words, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And so Jesus didn't need to assume any degree of authority as he spoke to them. The authority was already his. I love the way that J. Grison Machin, Machen, the late Presbyterian pastor, put the authority of Jesus into his own words. He said, in quote, and this is a very tweetable thing, by the way, if you want to ever tweet this, that Jesus claimed the right to legislate for the kingdom of God. Again, Jesus claimed the right to legislate for the kingdom of God. See, Jesus is, of course, we know, true prophet, priest, and king, and he would prove his divine authority even here in this moment, but especially in this coming event of his death and his resurrection. And so as true prophet, Jesus dictates God's truth to us. As true priest, he cleanses his people And as true king, he rules over his people with righteousness. But in mercy, in mercy, he has gone to the most extreme of all measures to purify men and women like you and myself, his people, the church. See, just as the prophet Moses in the Old Testament was consumed, utterly eaten up with the worship of God, upon returning from Mount Sinai, as the people were rebelling rebellion against God, he ended up tearing down their own golden calf and, and stated God's law for their good. Jesus, as the true and better prophet, is utterly zealous for his church and does not want his church to become enslaved by any ounce of idolatry or hint of false worship. This is why we here at Harvest, every time we gather, sing intentionally God's own thoughts, and his own songs from the Psalms back to his listening ears every Sunday. It is why we are so careful not to conform the the content of our worship and what we do here to the passing fads and whims of our society around us. It is why we treasure the gospel of Christ and him crucified so much so that we dare not replace this message with ideologies of self-help or politically driven speeches or entertaining shows or light shows even, as so many churches sadly do nowadays. It is why we lift each other up, positively speaking, in fervent prayer, with earnestness for God to answer us and to revive our souls and for his glory to be made known in our midst. And it is why we openly confess our sins and our struggles with each other so that we might know the power of God's forgiveness in our own lives. Friends, if I can encourage you for a moment, I see each one of these things so evidently in you all every time I have the chance of visiting you. See, yours here at Church of the Harvest is a holy hunger for the word of Christ. Yours is, by grace, a spiritual vitality that is to be spurred onward and upward. Yours is the pleasing aroma of Christ and a fragrant offering of praise to our holy God. And it is a direct fulfillment of what Christ did 2,000 years ago when he bought and cleansed and purified his church in his atoning death and resurrection. In the words of one of my favorite professors at Westminster Seminary, Dr. Johnny Gibson, a Hebrew professor, it is from Christ's riven side that he brought forth his bride. You. But Why? why would he go to such a great length? Why would he, the spotless and holy one of whom we've been meditating on this morning, lay down his life for such filthy and vile sinners as ourselves? Friends, it was all, all for the joy that was set before him, that he endured the cross, despising its shame. His joy, his zeal, his burning passion, Is for the cleansing of you, his bride, whom he clothed in the garments of his own righteousness. So in John 2, we see that he cleansed the temple. And in his atoning death and resurrection, we see that he cleansed the church by and large. But friend, do you believe, this is where it gets personal, (laughs) do you believe in your own heart of hearts that Jesus is able and in fact willing, even zealous to cleanse you. I believe we see this implicitly here in the last part of our passage in verses 23 through 25. See, in his zeal for every member of God's house, Jesus stands ready and eager even now to cleanse you and to wash you with the waters of baptism by his word. But please hear me correctly. This is not just an evangelistic call to come to Christ and be justified by faith in him. Although if that is you, and you do not yet know Christ as your Lord and Savior, there is a clear invitation for you even here in this text. But for those of us who are already believers, this is also a call to know and to enjoy the ongoing experience of sanctification as the gospel washes over you and refreshes you day by day. See, the glory of Jesus' cleansing work in us as believers, those who already believe, is that he neither requires nor expects us to clean up our own selves in order to commune with him by prayer or by his word. In fact, he knows that you and I are unable to present ourselves as pure and holy before God. So confession of our complete reliance upon him is all that he requires of us For he does not entrust himself to even our noblest desires to please him, as good as they may be in the moment. He doesn't entrust himself to our own failed ability to clean ourselves up, as is implicit in verse 24. Rather, solely by faith in his name, we are made clean and justified. Friends, there is a powerful application here in this gospel truth for both you and me this morning. See, elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 6, we learn that our bodies are also like a temple in which the Holy Spirit resides. The text there in 1 Corinthians 6 says this, that you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. It's convicting, isn't it? Friend, you might be thinking this morning, yeah, but Rich, I don't feel clean. I have desecrated my body in the past. I have entertained lustful thoughts in my mind. Even as a Christian, I have fallen prey to foreign loves and idols of the heart. How can Jesus actually want me? So to you, dear honest and maybe struggling Christian, and I mean this absolutely sincerely, Jesus knew all that you have ever done and ever will do. And yet he proved that he wanted you by dying willfully for you upon that cross. See, his cleansing of the physical temple pales in comparison to his ability and his willingness to cleanse you as a member of the bride of Christ and to remove from you every last one of your sins as far as the east is from the west. Do you believe that? be resting in that this morning. As we close, I want to turn your mind's eye back to my story about the dogs. Because let's just be honest, who doesn't love a story about dogs, right? (laughs) See, in the midst of my sheer panic over the mud that those two retrievers had tracked into my friend's clean house, again, not my own, all the more reason to be a little alarmed by it, especially as they jumped all over those clean white couches and made a mess out of everything inside of there. My dog Baxter, the chocolate lab, quickly picked up on my facial expressions in that moment. He saw immediately that I was livid and upset over what he had done. And I could see in my dog's own eyes, funny as it sounds, that he just began to sulk inside of himself. I can probably imagine what happened in my own heart. <laughs> my own heart became full of compassion toward him. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't help but just rush over to him and give him a giant hug. I know it sounds cheesy because he's just a dog. Totally get that. (laughs) Dogs are not kids, for the record. (laughs) But he's my dog. My love for even my own pet compelled me to comfort him in the midst of his own dirtiness. And then, after I had shown him love, again as his owner, then did I proceed to wash him accordingly and thoroughly and Jesus has a far greater love and an affection for you that will never run dry. Your dirtiness, whatever you might be even feeling here today, as great as it may be, is of no surprise to him. He knows it full well. Yet he is still zealous for your purification, dear friend, as the gospel of grace makes greater inroads into your lives. This morning and going forward, he is still zealous for your humble reliance upon him. And he is still zealous for your joy in knowing that liberty of a clean conscience before the Father by faith in Jesus. For he who is now raised from the dead will at the last raise you too with a body incorruptible. Oh, how we long for that day. So, friend, do you desire for Jesus to cleanse you even here? If so, hear the word that he has spoken over you. I will be clean. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful for your word as it washes over us that we ourselves recognize that we have nothing in and of ourselves to present as clean before you. And yet the powerful mystery of the gospel is that you who knew no sin for our sake became sin so that in you we might become the righteousness of God. Thank you, O Lord Jesus, that you who are rich beyond all splendor all for love's sake became poor. That this beautiful condescension of you to us, your coming into the the dirty messes of our own homes and our lives, is indicative of your great love for us, not of wrathful judgment for the sake of judgment alone, but for the sake of correction and reproof and training now in righteousness. And so we ask, O God, that we would be men and women who live in light of the righteousness of Christ, that he himself, by his Spirit, would safeguard our hearts in our affections, even now, going forward. So we pray all this in his mighty name.